welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 237, and I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are back in the breach on a dreary Tuesday afternoon. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's emotional. I'm not saying it's emotionally dreary. I'm just no, saying it's rainy. Yeah. It's very rainy and dark. Dark. Dank. Dark. Not dank, no, sorry, but dark. No, it's dark. Definitely dark. Yeah. It's dark, and that could be symbolic of the country. It could not be. I don't know. Well, I think, yeah, I think, <laughs> by the way, you know, uh, sometimes when we say metaf- metaphorically uh, that the world is laughing at us? Yeah. They actually literally laughed at they us. They laughed at us today. <laughs> the world laughed at us. Yeah, yeah, no, they did. And, it, and uh, yeah, so at any rate, well, I think it's good for us to get laughed at. I mean, I think we've been kind of riding high on our own horse here. So the fact that the United Nations laughed at our president when he wasn't making a joke, you know? What did you expect was going to happen at that meeting? Frederick Nietzsche said that the sacred is that which we can't laugh at. <laughs> if that's the case, Trump is the opposite. He's the thing we're always laughing at. Yeah. It's like the opposite of sacred. Yeah. And you said that he almost seemed like he almost laughed at himself. He, there was a, a moment of humanity. Like when he said, I'm the guy who accomplished more than any administration in history. And people just started laughing. And he kind of grinned and was like, huh, I didn't expect that reaction. And almost laughed at himself. It was so human almost. Yeah. It's the first time on record the Bulgarian ambassador had ever smiled, I heard. I, yeah. It, I was, mean, it was, it was, <laughs> I don't know much about the Bulgarian. I, I just always think it used to be like in the Olympics, the Bulgarian judges always were kind of. The Russian judges. Yeah, the, the well, they were the point they were bought off by the Russians. But it was kind of, that hasn't changed. That's all still the same. That's good. The more things change, the less they. The more they stay the same. Is I that think the, so, yeah. Is something, that the, something, something like that. But um, I suggested this topic um, in part because it's something obviously I'm living with. Uh, and I posted, I'm not going to quote myself, I posted a couple uh, week ago on the Resident Exile Facebook page. If you're interested, you go look at it. But this idea of um, the kind of ways we talk about death that maybe give us comfort, but um, you know, we've all probably heard before that, well, death is the ultimate healing. Or when someone dies, well, they're better now. And I personally don't find that helpful or particularly theologically correct. I mean, I think for me, part of just thinking about death as death, uh, that, you know, that's initially what we have to do. And and it's funny, I mean, before my own personal losses uh, um, made me think about this, and of course, I've dealt a lot with grief and some pretty extreme tragedies in my professional life uh, with working with people. There was a great book that came out about 10 years ago that's called The Republic of Suffering, Death of the American Civil War, written by Drew Gilpin Faust. Is she still president of Harvard? Uh, I don't know. I don't know, but she was. It won the uh, National Book Award. It was a National Book Award finalist. But it talked, it, it was really fascinating about, again, I'm a historian, so if you're a historian geek, you like it. If you urge the Civil War, you like it. But uh, as a, as a, uh, you know, a pastor as well, this idea of, of the trauma of the Civil War um, and how it really 
there was a whole culture of death and how in many ways it changed the way um, this country in a societal way thought about death and, and talked about death. And I don't want to get into that particularly, but one of the things I think that when, when people, when Christians talk about heaven, for instance, and I guess you can't talk about death without talking about the afterlife, um, it's amazing to me how— well, you could if you're— Sam Harris or Chris <laughs> well, Fritchens, I mean, I mean, or but let's pretend we're, let's pretend we're a religious podcast. All right, yeah. then we could then we'll say that yes, that's... yeah. I mean, but I mean, from my perspective, of course, you can talk about death without afterlife, but I don't think they talk about the afterlife one time in Conan the Barbarian. A lot of death. Maybe they do. I don't know. I don't know that for a fact. I could, I don't know that. All right, very good. That's the first movie that came to your head when you. Thought I was about thinking that. of something with a lot of death. <laughs> <laughs> Which the what it was uh, what was it um, oh gosh Rambo four which one has they think had the most death scenes per minute of any film? one of them was the one marketed to Christians because he goes to like Indonesia to like yeah. save like missionaries or like I mean they marketed that to mega churches like that movie was written yeah there's a sucker but now I mean <laughs> <laughs> but somebody if, if you actually look at the Bible and or <laughs> when in doubt. Let's really go to this. Ad fontes. To I, the source. I was at a meeting the other day and they kept saying, What where should we where should we find out about this? I could call them Bible. Bible's not the Bible. Bible. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> but when we think about what the Bible and also what the tradition talks about heaven, uh, there's there's not a lot there. Um, you know, the one thing that's obviously clear is that to be in heaven is to be with with God. We shall be we shall know as we are known. So there's this kind of, for most of the history of Christianity, up into into maybe the uh, 18th century, um, you know, heaven was you know basically described in kind of m- almost mystical spiritual terms. It's to be with God. Okay. Uh, one of the things that um, changes though, and and it's interesting. You even read poetry about heaven seems like a cold place. Uh, uh, the reaction, if you would, even the kind of pure, the way the Puritans talked about heaven and such. One of the things that's interesting in the in the in the 18th century, uh, there was a teacher, the Swedenborg, the founder Emanuel Swedenborg, who started the Swedenborg movement, which was always a very marginal, not very influential in and of itself. But some of its ideas became very influential. Brennathan, dude, nice campus right here in yes, Bucks I know, County. yeah, the new church, uh, gorgeous. But he published a book in 1758 called Heaven and Hell, and in that he talked about really heaven is hardly a separate reality. That the difference between uh, Death and man after death, he says, is as much man as it was before, so much so as he's unaware that he's not still in the former world. Death is only a crossing. So this idea of crossing over and beyond the veil, you know, which becomes an expression in the 18th century. A sweet Borgian, a good sweet Borgian you would not make. No, I'm not a good sweet Borgian. You're you're not really. That's that's a tradition just not wired for you. Yeah, and actually, you know, but it's... uh, the historian James H. Moorhead, and I'm reading from the book here, has demonstrated the second half of the 19th century witnessed a muting of the negative image traditionally associated with life's ends. And there was almost a new eschatology influenced, a widely influenced Protestant thought based on the idea of, of heaven is a continuation from here, but only better. And, and maybe one of the things that became very important during the Civil War period was this idea of heaven is a reunion of sorts that you'll you'll be able to recognize each other that it'll be this great gathering. Um, you know, at my father father's funeral, we sang his favorite 
hymn, which he heard his uncles, which I remember is my I remember them, my great uncles. You know, will the circle be unbroken? Now it's a question. <laughs> you know, the, the song is a question. It's not a certainty, but this idea of being gathered together uh, with with your ancestors, which in many ways is a very old, not a necessarily a Christian idea, but that gets really brought into the Christian, popular Christian notions of heaven. And, under, you know, it's not remarkable, just like there was an explosion of spiritualism, interest in spiritualism in Europe after World War One. there was an explosion of that in this country, as well as, you know, hundreds of books written about heaven. I did, used to do an exercise with undergraduates, and I, I printed out every passage in the New Testament that said something about the soul, right? And there's, you know, a couple dozen, maybe, passages. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them what they learned about the soul. Almost nothing. Yeah. Then we were so philosophers. Then we were talking about the death of Socrates <laughs> and how much they just realized that most of their conceptions of the afterlife and the soul come from Socrates. Right. They don't come from the New Testament. That, that this, and this idea of death as, I mean, I had to think about the difference between the death of Jesus and the death of Socrates. I mean, death is a release for Socrates. It is the, there is this, you know, you're in the realm of the forms, truth. There, there's, it's not, it, there's antagonistic thing that Jesus doesn't want to die. Like, you know, the, the sweating blood in Gethsemane. I mean, there's, death is not a, a, this sort of sweet, sweet sorrow kind of thing. It's not, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, so I think, generally think we're much more, sh like th that Platonic tradition shapes the average American much more than anything in the Bible. Right. And I think, Ian, I think the other thing, too, is, and this is, um, I, I mean, we, we did an episode uh, where we actually, was it two episodes ago where we solved the Paul issue? It was. Solved. Yeah, yeah. Solved it. Solved it. Done. Done. It's done. Done. Right. Bucket list. Right. Uh, <laughs> if there are any questions, please just send them to us. But we think we, think we, we found where the old Paul and the new Paul uh and we like we like to call it our Paul. That's our, that's how <laughs> our Paul, our Paul. But I think for the Christian perspective, um, and this certainly is embedded in the creed that you know this idea that that resurrection is an essential component of any hope that we have, uh, and that you know this, and even a bo the bodily resurrection, whatever that means. And again, you know, I think the one place where it's it, where someone tries to explain the Bible, you know. First Corinthians 15. Well, if you read First Corinthians 15 and understand exactly what's going on, then I think you'd know more than Paul did when he was writing it because he's he's taking shots at it. That's for sure. But baptism uh, for the dead. That's still you're like that. That's not in chapter 15. It is. Then why I, do you why do you die? Why do some of you get? I if there that was is no chapter 10. If there's no resurrection, then why do you get baptized for the dead? I thought. Well, I know it's in First Corinthians. It's, it's in 15. It's in the, it? it's in the argument. That's why it's interesting. This is why I find this thing interesting because he. Apparently, it's done. Right, it's, it's, it's and, being practiced in and, the Corinthians. And, and he's using the fact that it's done to say, like, the fact that, well, this is meaningless, too, if you don't believe in the resurrection. So we have an implicit affirmation by Paul the doctrine. Yeah, All yeah. Right, so there you go. I just, it's, I'm here for, for that kind of relevance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jeffrey A. Carter from California says, you guys are the best of Paul. Tremendous insights, totally solid, and you know solving the best solid. <laughs> Tremendous insights. <laughs> okay, I think that was meant to be read. You guys are the best at Paul. Tremendous insights, totally solid, and you know solving where the best solve it. Nobody really has solved it. Until you know, Paul, his stuff is complicated. Most people don't know. 
<laughs> most people don't know he's complicated. Whenever Donald Trump says, "I," most people don't know, it's obviously something everyone knows. Like Abraham Lincoln. Did you know he was a Republican? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like everyone knows that. Right. No, no. So, but the world's not laughing at us when we say that we've solved, we're the greatest solvers. Jeff might be. Well, he could Jeff. be. He, he could. posted a picture on Facebook of his new study. It looks awesome. It does look impressive. So... Part of, you know, the other thing I think that, that and it's something I include almost most of my most of my funeral sermons, is this Pauline idea that death is our enemy. It's the last enemy. So in other words, it's one that we have not quite, uh, we've not, it's not been conquered. Now, again, you could say in Christ it's been conquered, but we're still waiting, you know, waiting for us to fully, fully realize that. And the other thing I'm, the other reason I'm saying that is, again, I, you know, however people want to comfort themselves to get through grief, I'm not judging that. Uh, you know, again, there are probably some, there are some unhealthy ways to do it. But, but you know, group, there's nothing more individual. You're not judging that presently. <laughs> not presently. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's, it's, for as much as I think I've understood the grieving process and, and the suffering, I mean, there's a whole new level. I mean, I, frankly, I haven't even had time for my own grieving for either my father or our Colleen, um, who was uh, such an important part of our, our family's lives and my life. Uh, and I know that's going to come, but I, I've been very present to my mother's grief. And, um, you know, my mom and my dad had been together for nearly 59 years. They grew up, they were kids when they got married. They grew up together. She, for so much of life, was really took care of him and nurtured him, loved him in ways that he had never been loved growing up. Um, my mom had a stroke five years ago or so, and, and the roles kind of reversed. My dad was very good with her, was nurturing, and, and the, just the violence of that loss. Um, you know, I, you can, you, the, the hole in her life is palatable. It's whatever my grief is, the fact is I have no way of understanding, um, understanding what, what that is like. And so, you know, and I've, I've noticed because I've been, you know, I've been called in some really horrible situations and walked with people for, with grief. But what I've realized in the past, I always got to eventually leave. And, you know, and, and my mom's grief, um, how important my dad was to my kids, my sons, you know, just seeing, being all around that, even not being able to fully, you know, fully engage what it means for me for him not to be around. I think that just reminds me that, you know, death, he's dead. That's, you know, what, uh, I mean, I even walked in in the, in the funeral home. I don't like funeral homes. I mean, I just don't like, I don't like the whole process. And, you know, they, they walked in when they were. But, yeah, most people don't love them. <laughs> I had a great I, I had a great aunt like them in West Virginia. They were kind of recreational. It's very, very strange. It, well, she was very strange. Matter of fact, one time she went to the viewing and she came out uh, and she said to the person who was coming in, she goes, "Your mom looked beautiful. Uh, she looked more beautiful than she ever did before," which was kind of something an insult. She just and, and the person said, "My well, aunt Peggy, mom was cremated," and she goes, "Are you sure?" <laughs> she went to the wrong viewing. Oh, there well, we go. She did really enjoy them. She did enjoy them. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help 
launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Jim Kirk, Samantha Konauer, and Jordan DeMaze. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. No, I, I think the thing about it is even just walking in they, while they were doing preparations, and it didn't bother me because that—that's not—that was not my dad for me. That was—that was the physical form. It was what's left of him in the material world. But but uh, whatever I think his true essence is, whatever happens after death, in terms of you know at that moment of death or whatever, you know, there's all kinds of theological different positions on that. But who he really is who he was who he is is with god whatever that whatever that means so i i think for me uh just thinking about that the other day and and um again you know sometimes all these books that try to you know talk about well heaven is real proof of this or that again i i don't know what happened to people i do know we do have done some neuroscience we know that Brain activity continues to happen even after you, you know, their heart stops. So who knows where these visions come from? Maybe they actually come from God. But um, I don't know that there is an afterlife. I don't know there is a heaven. I, I believe there is a heaven. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because Christ has conquered death, therefore, we too shall experience that. I believe that. I, but I don't know that in, the, in a way I know that my father is dead. And I think for me, it's just a deeper, it's been a deeper um, experience of, of walking in faith. Um, and uh, it's, it hasn't increased my fear of death. In some ways, it's, it's, not, it's not comforting. It's not, I'm not in despair. Uh, it is profoundly sad. But if there's a sense where it's something I've talked about my entire adult life, um, Something I thought, like, you know, have probably done more than this than average in terms of dealing with people in, in grief and death. Um, but I, I realized anew that, you know, it's like manna. Your, your faith, you re-up your faith every day. And uh, there might be a bad day. So the, the hope is, you know, you, know, you f- forgive me and uh, I believe help me my unbelief and you get up and do it again. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I I feel like like I like I had a weird I've had some like I've had some weird death like I guess exp- like in the sense of I my grandmother was died my, on my maternal side like I I found the body. I was like less oh, wow. than 3. Like, wow. And I remember this. Like yeah, it was sure. Sure. Very at the bottom of the stairs. And so like and there was like I mean it's really weird circumstances around that death and everything. And then before school age, I remember my grandfather was a funeral director and I like I walked in like him embalming bodies. Like so like and then I and then lost a lot of like family that we were extended family, right. great aunts and uncles and stuff like that that we were close to. So it's like it was very like 
like death was something that was something that was embedded early on in memory. Yeah. Like, which yeah. is just strange in general. Uh, I mean, in this culture, this day and age, it's not in other times, other cultures. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah right. I mean, in modern culture, yeah, it is. Modern it's, American culture. Yeah. Modern American culture. It's, it's, it's weird. And so I don't know. So that's for what, what I don't, for what it's worth. Like those are, those are just, just ex, ex, experientially like it, it's a strange, like I've been like, it's weird. We grant me, you know, again, the the funeral home business and it's just a weird thing. Like it's, it strikes me as a strange, but it, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. And, I, and again, it's, it's funny. People to are me. dying to make you rich. And it's, yeah, well, the other thing, too, it's funny where, um, and again, I think uh, the funeral director we dealt with was fine. I mean, uh, and, um, but it, it is it is an industry and all the trappings around the industry that um, that really plays on people's False comforts and false notions. At weddings and funerals, dude. It's, it's like conspicuous consumption. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, that it plays on. Yeah, I mean, it's. But you know, it's interesting because you Heidegger, who I mean, I think Jensen says in his brief anthology, most evil philosopher. Mark <laughs> Pierce, something which that's maybe I don't know. That's well, intense, uh, that's, that 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 period with the Nazis kind of does. It does. Always, it does. Always comes back to the Nazis. It does kind of color things. Yeah, but you know, he thought that like human condition the human condition was like characterized by three things like one thing right is like facticity right like and it, you know that's just you most of us you know we not we don't get to change choose what we care about human beings are you're born in like you know 1492 or 20 you know 2003 or 1782 and so i mean we are people that you know it's heidegger's thinking about you know being and stuff like that he's trying to think of being non-abstractly and so he's like you know we don't everything about being is not just like detached intellectually it's we things mean something to us because we're caring creatures so i don't know about a hammer by just analyzing its components i don't even think about that until it breaks i know it as equipment like readiness to hand right. as part of a tools and care and life and sure and but most of us don't get to choose the circumstances of the stuff we'll care about because right. we're just born thrown even he's just like thrown into the world right and then there's this concept of like fallenness, which is kind of hard to, I mean, some people say it's, but the conventional thought is something like we sort of fall into line with what the cares of what the culture we're born into, right? There's a natural, like kind of going with the flow, right? right? You, right you're, yeah. you know, you, you, this is, we're social creatures. And so that happens, right? That you, and to be a, a, a creature, to be a person, you kind of have to have that sense right like you have to kind of go with the flow to some degree to to connect with the wider structures of meaning around it but then he th talks about the the third thing is like authenticity that and you kind of live between these poles of fallenness and authenticity right because if you're completely in in the fallen vibe you're sort of like you know you're just the what's that Pete Seeker's own little boxes, little boxes, box made of ticky tack, you know, and they all go to the golf course and they drink their martinis, right? Like this automaton's just kind of doing the, right. the system. Uh, but, you know, you think of like when you start to be, say, why the hell am I doing this? You think of like in Fight Club where Ed Norton is sort of like on the toilet ordering Ikea stuff and really asking what this all means, starts going to the support groups and stuff, like just to cry. And But like it's when you sort of experience some kind of self-reflection in the midst of that that that's the like the authenticity pull and he thinks the way like the most authentic thing is contemplating death i mean somebody in the 60s said in the 60s what well how do you get more towards this authenticity he said spend more spend time in graveyards but by that he means like on your deathbed 
You're not thinking about the social roles you played. Right. Like, how was I on that committee? Or what was I, you know, what if I... Your golf score. Right, my golf score. Or what was, you know, what if I could have been a better person at a Rotarian? Or, you know, what if I just got two more thousand likes on that Facebook Or what size my church was. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Any of that stuff is like, you're you're thinking not in terms of constructed roles. You're really thinking about who you really are. So I think there's something like that is is really, I mean... there's something to that, right? That death is this is this solitary authenticity kind of thing that we. But then you think of like Ernst Becker's book, The Denial of Death, and how much of human culture he thinks like because we're born with a physical side and a finite side, but then this kind of horizon for symbolic meaning, and those are intention. And so, so much war, peace, art, everything he thinks is this sort of death denial project like this sort of you know then the hard the really tough thing for moderns is not only do you, do you have are you caught in this tension but you know that the sun's going to burn out you know right. and then even if you are like you know steve jobs or something or, or whatever you are alexander the great eventually the sun's going to burn out no one's going to remember anything you did <laughs> like you know that like there's that's even sort of we have a more intense experience of that sort of conflict but yeah but you know he talks about kind of faith, a kind of faith that denies death and one that moves towards authenticity. And he quotes Luther, actually. He says, he says that Luther says you must be able to taste de- death with the lips of your living body so that you can know emotionally that you're a creature that will die. And he, 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 there's this, this thing, this process he thinks is self-transcendence, which is not a kind of bad faith, but it's a movement, I think, towards that kind of authenticity Heidegger is talking about. It says, man breaks through the bounds of merely cultural heroism. He destroys the character lie that had him perform as a hero in the everyday social scheme of things. And by doing so, he opens himself up to infinity, to the possibility of cosmic heroism. He links his secret inner self, his authentic talent, his deepest feelings of uniqueness, to the very ground of creation. Out of the ruins of the broken cultural self that remains, there remains the mystery of the private, invisible inner self, which yearn for ultimate significance. This invisible mystery at the heart of the creature now attains cosmic significance by affirming its connection with the invisible mystery at the heart of creation. This, he concludes, is the meaning of faith. Faith that, you know, despite one's insignificance, weakness, death, one's existence has meaning in some ultimate sense because it exists within an eternal and infinite scheme of things brought about and maintained to some kind of design by some kind of creative force. I mean, I, I think that that's like not exactly Christianity. <laughs> but but it's in, it's in the ballpark a little bit. You know, one of the things that strikes me too in this idea of, of even but looking beyond self. Uh, one of the things I've always found really interesting is how happy people are after funerals. Um, and one of the things... This is like uh, <laughs> w- uh, Wedding Crashers with Will, Fer- Will Ferrell. <laughs> Part of, well, death no, is death. Well, except the, except, well, except, powerful aphrodisiac. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I'm thinking particularly except for the, you know, the people who have had the greatest loss. But I think there's this kind of collective sigh, it wasn't me. You know, it's funny because I've watched, you know, I've observed people that, you know, and they're happy that wasn't me. I think we've probably told this story before, but uh, Roy Orbison, when he died, um, you know, at that point he was making music with uh, the Traveling Wilburys. Yeah. And uh, Tom Petty told the story that after George, he told this story, George, he gets a call like at five o'clock in the morning and it's George Harrison on the other side. And the first thing he says, be honest, you're glad it wasn't you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course George Harrison don't worry yeah, Roy's fine he's with it you know because yeah. whatever Harrison thought um, but I do think this sense of um, part of the Christian response to, to death is, is is 
even though grief is such an individualistic thing, it is something we all share. And and I think that's also the point. You know, it's part of the point of reference. Josh posted this great Jensen quote yeah. a couple of days ago. Uh, it's not the one he posts on Facebook right now, but he posted this. It's from a piece he wrote from Mockingbird. He posted this on last Thursday, I think. This is from Jensen. Death is perhaps surprisingly the one exclusively social event that happens to us. Since all experiences interpretation and therefore involves memory, only you will experience my death and only we will experience yours. Yeah, that's very powerful. I remember, um, I mean, a lot of my initial theological thinking about this was really shaped by J. Christian Becker and his apocalyptic approach to Paul. And and, and for him, it was really, I, I didn't learn this until after I had him, that he uh, had him in class and studied really closely with him and did, did some independent work with him. Um, and would have done would have done PhD work with J. Christian Becker, and he wanted me to, but I just wasn't sure he'd be there the next day. <laughs> he was just a kind of an unpredictable apocalyptic character. Um, and I remember one time uh, being up late and I trying you know, to study. I, I didn't. What write better it. than to study apocalyptic eschatology with, with a apocalyptic, with apocalyptic figure. figure? I know it kind of made it. It was like a living, you know, it was like a living model in, in class, but. I, you know, I've been up late watching, um, I had the TV on, I was studying Greek or something, and this this documentary came on, and fortunately I've never been able to find it again, but it was Children of the Holocaust, you know, some, and I watched it, and at, I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old sleeping in, um, in their bedroom, and there, and there was one close-up picture of it looked so much like my one son. I remember going into the room just, you know, you know, to wake him up. I just looked at him, you know, and I, hmm. I did everything I could. And uh, and uh, Becker, you know, I, uh, the next day I was walking campus. I didn't much sleep, and Becker came up to go. He goes, Mr. Boer, you look awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, I didn't get much sleep. I said, why did you not get much sleep? I said, well, I was doing my paper. And I, then I, I told him about watching this movie, and he stopped. And this was like one of the, you know, he was, but it was pastoral. He goes, so Mr. Bohr, what did the documentary teach you? Hmm. And I go, um, that maybe I can never be totally happy that my children are okay until all children are okay. He looked at me and he said, that's why we hope in the coming triumph of God. Yeah. And I found out later that he had been a, um, there was an article written uh, about what in tribute to him. He had been in a um, slave labor camp. Hmm. Uh, hmm. As a teenager, uh, his camp was destroyed by Allied bombing. He happened not to be there, um, and then was smuggled back to the Netherlands and spent the last year of the war hiding in a cramped attic. And um, anyway, so you know, I, I'm just reminded of um, of my own grief. Reminds me of other people's griefs. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I I've had dreams. I mean, it's it's so it's working through my subconscious, but. I had a dream about Colleen the other night, and uh, it wasn't really that profound, I don't think, or maybe it was. Uh, and, and she was, it was fine. It was nothing, it was an ordinary dream, but I was helping her find a new place to live. Hmm. Hmm. See, it's really interesting to me that, like, the, you know, I think that Jensen has been so helpful to me on this stuff. And, you know, for Jensen, in this book, little book, Story and Promise, which I found, find unbelievably profound, it's just that, like, what the old theological tradition calls law is stuff that basically makes our future conditional on the past. Mm. So our past performance right. hangs over us. That's our future. Yeah. Where, as, like, a promise sort of makes our past, the future shapes our past. Right. And, and, sh- and, f- and so he talks about how, like, the problem is like 
every promise can quickly turn into the, the feeling of law. The feeling, he says, you know, just when I needed it most, just when my spouse does the one thing that threatens me so deeply, maybe so there's some betrayal, even for her sake, I must flee, is probably the moment when she needs me most. So all these sort of beautiful promises we can make because of the vicissitudes of life, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and just finitude and fragility and fallenness, these things can become awful and, and promises are always can be, even in the most sincere utterance, can turn out to be hollow and for sometimes really good reasons. Right. Like, but the, so he thinks the only kind of promise that could truly be unconditional in the ultimate sense is one from the other side of death. Mm. And that that can only offer it's only one who dies for the sake of that promise uh, that can make a truly irreversible promise. And he thinks that's the story of death and resurrection. And so it's, you know, C.S. Lewis, part of his conversion was sitting around in this pub, one of the early stories that like, and he's listening to these Oxford Dons talk about how some articles they had read on the reliability of the New Testament and, 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 non, and he said, and then one of them says, how seems the bread God stories, the whole seed and, and rising, it seems like it actually happened once or so they thought it did. And Lewis is sort of thinking that like this, these, all these ancient myths these sort of death and of dying and rising that like that, it, I think the hope is that that is uh, that eternal mystery that Becker is talking about that the, yeah. the, at, at the other side of that is, is an unconditional promise. And that, that to me is like, and that meaning becomes then one that can only be received. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Mel Gibson's, um, you know, passion of Christ is a problematic film in so many ways, but there's a scene and I, I don't remember. It's been so long since I've seen it. Cool Satan though. Great Satan. But um, where he actually, Jesus actually says in the middle of his, of his crucifixion, behold, I make all things new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's only in crucifixion you can that those words maybe have the greatest meaning. Yeah, amen to that. Take care, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.